Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Yes, thank you, Ben. In today's show, Courage to Hope, this is your Uncle Tony speaking. Uh, we have a very interesting guest. His name is Sheriff Patrick W. McDermott, and he is the sheriff of Norfolk County. And most of you, he is in your county. So welcome, Sheriff Patrick. Uh, should I call you Uncle Tony or regularly Tony? No, you can Uncle just Tony. call me Tony. Yeah. <laughs> Tony, very good. Yeah, that's, Hello, that's the way it works. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll tell you, um, Sheriff, I did a lot of research on you in the past three days. Probably know as much as your wife does by now. Hey, uh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah. About the, what I you try do to, for I work. try to keep a few things secret from her, too, but that's okay. Very few. Okay. <laughs> I am, I am uh, very impressed with, with all the things that a sheriff does. And I have growing up in uh, Plymouth County. Uh, I could tell you that I never even knew who the sheriff was. And the last 20 years, it seemed like the sheriff in each county is getting more and more involved with different things. And um, I noticed you were elected in 2020 and you had a long history of public service and nonprofit work. Can you explain what you were doing before you became the sheriff? So, you know, at a young age, I, I made it a point that I was going to focus on, uh, uh, you know, my mission basically was to try to find challenging opportunities that I could use my talents to give back to my community. That was kind of a baseline point of what I started out writing a, a, a personal mission statement back in college. And um, I made it a point to continue on after, after getting out of Boston College, get involved directly in my community. Um, I was one of the young, I was the youngest uh, president of my local neighborhood association. Started out uh, just working with the Montclair Wallace Neighborhood Association and uh, in terms of engaging in civic activities and, you know, advocacy on local issues in my community of Quincy. Um, I went on to get involved in, in politics. I graduated my degree in political science and communications from Boston College and uh, immediately uh, got involved in a campaign locally uh, for state representative. Uh, my good friend, Mike Bellotti, had decided to run for, for office and directly got involved with him. And, and luckily, we were successful in that campaign. I I ended up working for, for uh, then Representative Bellotti at the State House uh, for a year before moving to Representative Rogers' office in the House and then to Senator Morrissey's office. That was the aide up at the State House there. So I kind of got my first real dig in with politics and with, with public service and policy uh, at the State House, working with two very, very great, three actually great individuals up the State House. Uh, but I moved on uh, from there, and in fact, and it was 1995 that there was an opportunity um, created in Quincy with the uh, moving on of my, my, my own city council was running for an at-large seat. Uh, I decided that uh, because I was a president of the Neighborhood Association, my background at the State House, that I could use that to the best use possible by running for the city council. Uh, I was fortunate in 1995, and I can't believe it's 27 years ago. And it was 27 years ago this past week, March 9th of 1995, that I uh, declared my candidacy for the local city council seat in Quincy and uh, went on to win that seat that year and then two subsequent terms for a total of three terms, six years on the Quincy City Council. 
At the same time, I actually went to law school. I went back to school, um, got my law degree uh, from Suffolk University and um, spent a year as a, a district attorney, an assistant district attorney for the Suffolk County DA's office um, under Ralph Martin. Uh, enjoyed that thoroughly. Uh, at the same time, once again, I was jumping back and forth between different governments. I went to work for Paul Harold at the, at the Registry of Deeds. Got some work uh, doing some real estate action and access to, to real estate and property records uh, for a couple of years with, uh, with Registered Paul Harold. It was then that uh, the opportunity presented itself once again to, to expand my, uh, my, my jump into politics when uh, the Register of Probate for Norfolk County, Thomas Patrick Hughes, uh, retired from his service, which opened up a very uh, somewhat obscure position. Uh, not, not many people know about uh, the fact that the Register of Probate is one of two elected positions within the trial court of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, elected by each county. Um, and so in 2002, I put my hat in the ring for Register of Probate for Norfolk County. Uh, fortunately, the voters uh, blessed me with their, their confidence and support. Uh, I was elected in 2002 uh, for my first term as Register of Probate, and I ended, up, um, I ended up in that position for 18 years. And it was there that I focused on, uh, my administration was focused on access to justice issues, uh, specifically relating to family law uh, and estate work. Uh, in particular, I, I found an interest in working with uh, uh, folks who are less, uh, uh, they were socioeconomically challenged, you know, folks that, of low income and low means to have access to the courts. And not everybody could hire a lawyer to, to represent them in the family court. And I wanted to make sure that we made access to the courts fair and equitable across the board. So I started a, a lawyer of the day program. I started a guardianship clinic to focus on uh, individuals. And we'll get into that a little bit further in my current position, but uh, to help with individuals, families struggling with the opioid. Uh, issues as well as for folks with seniors who, who need uh, needed access to, to guardianship of uh, folks with dementia and Alzheimer's. Uh, I also invested a lot of time in focusing on domestic violence issues during those 18 years. And so I'm very proud of the record of service I had at the Probate and Family Court. I served as president of the Bar Association of Norfolk County during that time, as well as president of the Massachusetts uh, Registers of Probate. And so I, I really put forth a statewide effort in the law and in, in public policy relating to access to justice issues. Um, but like anything else, you know, it, uh, positions uh, do have a shelf life. And I, I realized that uh, that having uh, looking forward to another term as register of probate wasn't in the cards for me. That uh, It was time to move on, sat down with my wife and said, you know, it's time for me to look at something different. And whether that's practicing law or moving on to another governmental position, and it was in the summer of 2018 that uh, uh, Mike Bellotti, who had gone from state rep, who was my friend and I worked with, he uh, became the sheriff of Norfolk County. And it was in the 2018 that, that Sheriff Bellotti called me up and uh, took me out for breakfast. And we discussed uh, the opportunity, well, his opportunity to be the president of Quincy College, uh, which he accepted. Uh, but that created a vacancy in the sheriff's office uh, in that particular year. Um, I expressed an interest in running for it, started uh, uh, making some phone calls, investigating the position a little bit more than I already knew about it, um, and decided to run. Um, at the same time, it was, uh, it was because of, and we can do a little civics here, 
because there was a vacancy in the sheriff's office, the governor had an opportunity to appoint an acting sheriff uh, until the next state election were to be held. So uh, Governor Baker did appoint another sheriff uh, by the name of Jerry McDermott. So we, we like to confuse the voters a little bit. And they, they appointed another yeah. McDermott to serve as the interim sheriff until uh, the next state election. And uh, sheriff, sheriff Jerry McDermott and I ran against each other in the, in the November 2020 election. Uh, and the voters of Norfolk County elected Patrick McDermott. So I'm filling still the final two years of Sheriff Bellotti's term. And, uh, and we'll, we'll turn the corner uh, this year as all sheriffs in Massachusetts will be up for election by the voters this year as well. So uh, I've, been a, I've been sheriff now just a little over a year now. And uh, we've hit the ground running. Yeah, I'd say you have. Is um, a sheriff's term four years normally or two years? It's a six-year term. So six-year term. Uh, six-year term. That's uh, and it's it, oddly enough, I I thought uh, I've I've just been known of Massachusetts uh, uh, constitutional law for a long time, and I assumed that most of the country was the same. Come to find out that most sheriffs around the country have a four-year terms. Some have three years. Some have two years. Some are appointed. Uh, most of them are elected. But in Massachusetts, we elect our sheriffs every six years. Okay. Let's go back a little bit. When you ran for city council and you won that, how old were you? Uh, I was 25 years old when I, uh, when I won the city council seat. So um, you're the youngest ever? Or was that, I, that year, that's pretty I impressive. Been, I would have been the youngest elected, but that year uh, we voted in uh, my colleague who was 20 years old. <laughs> so he, uh, he shattered the, uh, the age uh, record in Quincy. So, um, wow. so yeah, so I, I was the second youngest. <laughs> that's that's pretty good. Now you became the sheriff. What what surprises did you find right away when you became a sheriff? Once you walked into your position, I'm sure you must have seen a few things that you did not expect. Yeah, you know the the while well, the expectations, you know, I, I always I taught myself early on not to set really any major expectations on anything. I, I like to kind of get my feet wet as soon as I enter into a new situation. Oftentimes. Uh, you sit back and just and observe what's been going on. And unfortunately, on this situation, we really didn't have that luxury because uh, when I got sworn in in January of 2021, uh, uh, we were in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, we really didn't have time to, to have much of a transition. We really had to get up to speed very quickly. Um, uh, the, the, the pleasant surprise that I had, you know, bottom line is that the, the staff that I inherited, the difference is I went from register of probate having 24 employees to being sheriff with 320. Um, and that was just an eye-popping moment for me. So very challenging in and of itself to just take on a, a major operation like that. And in the middle of a pandemic, knowing uh, what risks were there in terms of the uh, COVID-19 uh, we, we didn't have a lot of time to, to really uh, enjoy any much of a honeymoon. We needed to get uh, right, right in work, putting a, our emergency protocols in place for COVID, um, making sure our team was up to speed. And I brought in some, some newer individuals to uh, the sheriff's office with me. And uh, we immediately got the task in terms of learning the, uh, the operation. That's probably the biggest like aha moment is, is the volume of things that the sheriff's office is responsible for. Um, and certainly in the enormous responsibility of the care and custody of justice-involved individuals, uh, whether it's health care issues, certainly even the, the simple things that we take for granted about feeding ourselves, 
You know, we, we serve, you know, three squares, square meals a day for over 300 uh, inmates every day. Uh, just the food service operation alone is a 24-7 operation. So all in all, the, oh, yeah. the, 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 the learning curve was a big one uh, taking over. But luckily, the staff was absolutely uh, tremendous in terms of the transition. And um, one of the things that I, I focused on in 2021 was, as I said, during when I campaigned and I spoke to the residents of Norfolk County. And, you know, after 20 years of, you know, the prior sheriff was Sheriff Pilati, who had done a fantastic job. But it was time, you know, like a, a new set of eyes takes over. And the first thing that I asked for is uh, to have several audits uh, of the facility, both as a pr performance audits as well as uh, financial audits being taken care of. So we uh, we spent most of the year in 2021 reviewing all of our programming, all of our pro protocols and procedures. We brought in national uh, accreditation firms to come in and, and scrutinize our operation. And suffice it to say, we we uh, we hit the ground running, and um, uh, the biggest uh, accreditation that we received uh, was from the American Corrections Association, which is nationally now known for their accreditation standards. Uh, and I'm, I was very blessed to to, uh, to have received a perfect score um, when they came through. And we worked very hard at that. That was in August of last year, and uh, we spent uh, the first several months of the year making sure we were up to speed on all our protocols revised them, updated them, made sure that the facility was clean, made sure that all of our programming was was accredited and up to speed. And uh, we were very happy and proud hey, of that accreditation. I was going to go back to that. I was going to say, you said that very casually, the perfect score. But uh, from what I was able to read, the perfect score and mandatory and non-mandatory standards for the first time in agency history. Correct. I think I think that's a big a big plus that you need to make sure that that uh, people on on the outside understand what that really means, you know. Um, yes, and we're real, and we're real proud of that. That that uh, and uh, we had a we had our auditor, it's an A plus. The lead it's auditor was from she was from Louisiana, and she's been auditing for twenty over twenty three years. And uh, when she addressed our staff uh, with me and my staff, she she uh, her quote was just ringing, and I, to this day I'm so proud to hear it. Is that she she said, Sheriff. Uh, you run one of the premier correctional facilities in the United States of America. And that, that to me is a tribute to the staff and the commitment of the team that we have in place there in Norfolk County. Wow. So uh, one thing going back when you, when you were hired and, and the other McDermott was hired um, in business, a lot of times they only move people into the top spot from within. And then in this case, you're elected, so you're you're walking into the top spot. Um, how does the how does the staff uh, approach you? How do how do they feel about that? Somebody from the outside that's never worked in a prison, and all of a sudden you're the boss. You know? Did you? Yeah. They... Historically, I run the last several sheriffs, and even in even in prior uh, going back in the history. Most sheriffs have in Norfolk County have come in from the outside. And some counties that do have people that have come through the ranks. I know that uh, my, my colleague, uh, Sheriff Kochi from Hamden County spent his entire career as a corrections officer and then work, working through the rank and then becoming an assistant superintendent before becoming sheriff. Um, Norfolk County has, has typically hired people from outside uh, to come in and that's the, vo the voters speaking. Um, you know, I, you know, it, and like I said, it is an elected position. And, and when we spoke about uh, what, what I was looking to do 
you know, I brought my business acumen to the uh, to the table. You know, my my experience in the nonprofit world, my experience as an attorney, as a former prosecutor, and certainly my government service. But one of the things I did with the staff early on, before I was elected, but I met with met with a lot of the staff, including all three uh, labor unions. There are three labor unions that make up a, a majority of our staff uh, at the at the sheriff's office. Uh, met with them early on. I I, I discussed with them what their uh, what their um, ideas are for the facility, what their uh, complaints might have been uh, in the past, and what their vision was for the future. Um, and I, you know, I worked with with a lot of the staff during my campaign to convince them that I was the right candidate for the job. And um, when when he get, when we did get it, I brought in several new people, a lot of new faces. My chief of staff was uh, was from the outside. Um, certainly, my press uh, my press. Um, uh, my CIA chief information officer was was somebody from the outside that came in, but He's from the way too. outside, yeah, Garrett Nichols, I understand, is from Idaho. It's about yeah, as far yeah. outside as you can get. Garrett's from Idaho, but he comes from a great academic background, and I was honored to have him there. He's, he uh, he keeps my message on right straight and narrow. So, but but we, we also we also we also knew that we needed to have that support from within the facility too. And so we did promote several people immediately when I got there, um, including our assistant superintendent, uh, Danielle Frain, uh, who has done a phenomenal job in terms of making sure that we we're up to speed. We retained the current superintendent, my current superintendent, Mike Harris, who is actually retiring this week. Friday is his last day. Friday. Uh, okay. but, I, but I retained I retained Mike Harris and he came from. Suffolk County, and then was with with the Norfolk County Sheriff's Office the last three four years, um, and then I promoted a, a, a couple of corrections officers to higher ranking positions. So, and we made it. My my goal was to be as transparent with our operations as possible. A lot of times, the biggest criticism that the staff had was that there wasn't a lot of opportunity sometimes for advancement. Uh, there wasn't the kind of training that was offered. Uh, it was kind of a pick and choose who maybe the sheriff wanted to, to, to see advance and it didn't really open a universal opportunity for people. And I wanted to turn that around. Uh, and we've put forth more uh, opportunities over the last year than I think, uh, I think they've ever seen in the history of the agency. So we've, we've had a lot of turnover in terms of specialty positions, opportunity for people to take advantage of specialty positions with, uh, with, with outside agencies. We have a partnership with the FBI strike force uh, on a drug task force. Uh, we have positions uh, in Metrolec uh, with SWAT, canine operations. Uh, we've established a drone unit uh, for the Norfolk County Sheriff's Office that is now one of the most valuable units uh, in the region because of uh, the technical expertise that we put forth um, and, the, and the excellence that I demand. Uh, that, that's something that's going to be something going forward in law enforcement uh, as a region is going to be something very useful. So the opportunity for the staff to have advancement, um, I think, is something that was very much welcomed, and uh, so far so good. You know, we're we'll see how it works out. If I'm if I'm blessed to get uh, back in uh, for the full six year term, the first thing I need to do is negotiate a new contract with all three unions. So we'll see how how how, how that how goes. Works. <laughs> exactly. um, so let's get and talk a little bit about the inmates. So now that you're there for over a year. Um, you probably have noticed that a large number of people coming in are either have drug problems or mental health issues. 
Um, how many would you say have committed crimes because of uh, drug issues? Where do well, we stand here? Yeah, like, a, a, you know, is there, I know just a guesstimate and percentage because I've heard different I'm gonna, numbers. I'm going to say up to 80% of those that are coming into the facility have some kind of mental health or addiction issue. Um, and and it, and it, that that and that is something, and it, and it starts all over the place when it comes to drug addiction and stuff. But you know, these things uh, usually are what leads to criminal behavior. Um, and I've had it in my own family. Um, I've had uh, I've had a couple of cousins who have gone down uh, the wrong path when it comes to um, you know substance use disorder. Um, and it is it, it it is a it is a disorder. Um, predominantly that leads to criminal behavior. And that leads to usually stealing from relatives, sometimes getting escalated into, you know, stealing from neighbors, breaking into homes, then robbing yeah. places. So it is an escalation, but I think about it, I, I would best say it's up to 80% of our, 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 our justice involved individuals have some kind of mental health or substance use disorder um, that we need to address. And we are the largest, <laughs> basically we're the largest, mental health and um, substance use um, agency uh, in the Commonwealth oh. is, is, is your correctional facility. I see that. Yeah. Now, just, just to keep the, uh, as they say, in poker, the pot right, because um, uh, Courage to Hope is basically, we've talked several times with other guests about how do they get addicted and why do they do that? Because you never see anybody that's on their, their high school yearbook saying, I, I hope to be addicted to drugs or anything. And I've done my own survey and approximately, excuse me, approximately 80 to 85 percent of people who have addiction problems were originally a patient um, of, a, of a person in a lab coat, either at the hospital or in their doctor's office. And they had something happen while they were playing sports or a car accident. And first thing they did was prescribe opioids, Oxycontin, Oxycodone, Vicodin. <clears throat> and then after uh, two months of getting the prescription, they become addicted, and now they're no longer a, a patient. They've become an addict, and it's like uh, they 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 like you on one side, but look what happens on the other. And I'm sure that a lot of the people you see, uh, until they got their first prescription and got addicted, they never broke the law. And the biggest problem they have now is to try to maintain the the um, the drug addiction part because the drug takes over their brain and all their endorphins has been stolen and. Now they're looking for artificial endorphins to keep themselves going. So um, I, I, from our conversation we had a couple of weeks ago, you were mm -hmm. telling me that what you're doing now for prevention. And I, I do want to make a point, too, that um, you're a government facility, not a for-profit facility. Correct? Absolutely. Correct. Yeah. And that's one of my big, my big feelings. Of opposition is these prisons today across the country that are for-profit um, you know, they're like a hotel. They want clients. Uh, you don't want the clients to come back. And, but other prisons I get, they don't do anything for their prisoners. And you've turned that all around in Norfolk County. You're making sure that they have every resource they can so they don't come back. And I'd like you to elaborate on that. Yeah, we have a lot of things. And I'll just, I'll just show you, when you mentioned before about how, how people get, it, get into a situation where, they, where addiction comes about, um, just my personal story. Um, it, back in 1998, um, I was uh, I, I had suffered from arthritis, so I had both both severe I had severe arthritis in both of my hips, 
So in, in the summer of 1998, I had both my hips replaced. Um, and the first thing I got upon discharge was a big bottle of Percocets. And um, I remember mentioning it to my, my then girlfriend, who's now my wife, when we were, you know, I, I was very sensitive. I, I'm, not a, I'm not one that likes to take any, subst- any foreign substances whatsoever. Um, that's just been my whole life about, you know, just that natural food, all that stuff. Don't take any drugs that are unnecessary. But, you know, the pain that was associated with the post-recovery from hip surgery was pretty significant. So, you know, pain medication has its place in the world. But I'll tell you, so when I say a big jar, I had a big jar of that stuff. And plus a prescription that was basically allowed for two or three refills after that. But I remember telling my girlfriend, now wife, at the time when I was taking those Percocets, it was like floating. And it was a really good feeling. And that, to me, scared the daylights out of me, is how good that felt. And I can't imagine if somebody, you know, who had, you know, sadly, a a lot of people who have, you know, less of, you know, the the personal willpower for whatever, if that's it, um, to, to, to say no to, to that. I mean, I only took my pain meds long enough uh, to, to, to get into, re- into my own just natural recovery. Um, I think I, I, I discarded them after three days. I think I took them out of the Quincy Police Department. They had that drug exchange. You get rid of your medications. But I can tell you firsthand how those felt, and they felt real good. So I can imagine uh, if somebody has, you know, whether it's pain medications for, sur- for, for surgery, or sometimes you also have um, people that do, uh, you know, they, they, they start finding pills in their parents or their grandparents' uh, pill closet, and sometimes they, they start experimenting, and that's the other danger too. Um, so it is, it, these are highly addictive medications, and so uh, people who, you know, do get addicted to it, and it is a physical addiction. It is a disorder that that can, can consume your body. And I'm, I'm blessed that it didn't, it never happened to me. Uh, but I'm always weary of pain medication. And I think that the opioid crisis in and of itself led to those, uh, those, those inquiries and, and discussions about how, pre- how prescribers prescribe medication. Uh, now it's a very restrictive uh, prescription model. Um, it doesn't prevent people from trying to shop around, but the, you know, the, there's, a, there's now a, a lot of different fail-safe things that have been put in place to hopefully not allow people to go from doctor to doctor to get uh, people prescriptions for, for individuals. But that being said, you know, we recognize that the crisis exists. It hasn't gone away. And the sad part about, uh, you know, what we, what we went through with our, the COVID-19 pandemic is it took the opioid crisis off the front page of the newspaper, took it off the, the conversations that we were having in schools, took it off the, the conversations we were having in the local uh, in local town halls, uh, because we we were consumed with with the with the health crisis of COVID nineteen. Sadly, however, the proportion of addiction cases accelerated through those two years of the pandemic. Now, I, and I would venture to say we are back in the dark ages. Uh, we have to start almost at square one on uh, on the advocacy programs. And sadly enough, and I just was on a recovery panel. Uh, from a good friend of mine who lost her son four years ago to substance use disorder um, and an, o- and an overdose. And uh, that every parent on that panel and that, that either has lost a loved one uh, or is currently struggling said the same thing, that this is something that we are now going, we, we went backwards. 
And we have a lot more work now to do prospectively going forward. So one of the things that we wanted to make, we wanted to make sure that we're doing our part uh, in the sheriff's office, knowing that a lot of the, the, the justice involved individuals, the men that come into our facility have these issues. Uh, we wanted to make sure we strengthen the programs that were available to these men to make sure that they're not, uh, that they had that, well, that they're armed with the, the, the tools needed to succeed outside of the facility after their sentence is done. Um, so we're very, we're very proud of, we, we have numerous programs and we can go program by program what we have to offer and some of the things that I vision what we need to offer going forward as well. So um, it's a, it basically one of, one of the first things we did and we, we took advantage of the Zoom, uh, the, uh, the crisis uh, and, and, the, and the explosion of the use of Zoom by putting together, um, we didn't want to wait until the, the pandemic was over to bring our recovery panels back. So we started a, a, a Zoom monthly recovery panel. Um, we were able to connect uh, the men that, that, that are in our facility with, um, that are dealing with substance use disorder uh, with a panel of 25, sometimes up to 30 community partners, uh, nonprofits, uh, government agencies, and even former offenders uh, to discuss life and resources that are available to the offenders. And uh, I created this during COVID realizing that, yeah, we could use Zoom uh, to our advantage. And um, we were able to, to, to get all these agencies to come on board and, and discuss uh, substance use disorder with uh, the justice involved individuals we had. One of the most popular things that happened during the pandemic, we had people signed up for those monthly recovery panels, and we're very happy to continue those now. And uh, we want to expand them more in person. I mean, Zoom has been great. And luckily, that gave us a bridge to where we are today, but we're finally reopening our, our facility up to now to have more in-person coaching come into the facility. But those recovery panels are were, were very valuable during the pandemic. So uh, we're very fortunate to have had them. The good thing, one of the, the bad things that's come out of the pandemic as well as the amount of artificial pills that are out on the street that are laced with fentanyl. The one thing that I've seen, um, is these pills are coming in from mostly Mexico and they look exactly like a real Oxycontin or an or a Percocet and they have fentanyl in them. In fact, fentanyl appears to be in everything these days. I don't know why it seems to show up in, in the illegal marijuana. It shows up in cocaine. And the big advice that you would have to remind them is that you don't know where that pill is coming from if you're buying it on the street. And if it's got fentanyl in it, it, it might be a loaded gun. And this could be the end. You know, one pill can kill if it's got fentanyl to any quantities in it. Because I always say the guy who's making those pills, he's not a chemist. He doesn't know how much fentanyl you should put in and how much you shouldn't. And um, that's what happened, you know, because um, there was a problem getting real medication because there was so much communication, so much of the so much isolation out there. Uh, and it opened the door for the cartel from Mexico to start shipping up these fentanyl pills. So, um, and I, and I, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it, you know, because of, you know, the pandemic and the distractions that all of our governments had, um, I having just recently come back from Washington, DC, we were, I was attending the national sheriff's association conference, uh, our annual conference down in DC and our advocacy group. Uh, we had a great panel with secretary of Homeland security, Mayorkas, as well as the administrator of the Drug Enforcement Agency and the FBI, um, the cartels have expanded exponentially 
their production of, uh, of uh, well, they've imported fentanyl pretty much from China and they're lacing everything with it. It's highly addictive and it's dirt cheap and, it's, it, it, and they're putting it in everything. I think we recently saw, sadly, um, I think there were six West Point grads on spring break down in Florida, um, all overdosed on a, a fentanyl laced, and I forget if it was marijuana or some other drug, maybe it was cocaine. Um, but no matter what, this is, this is highly addictive and it's deadly. And the cartels don't care. They are, they are, they are bringing forth this drug, um, not just crossing the border traditionally, like we see on the news, you know, with people kind of cruising across the border. These cartels are extremely sophisticated. Um, they have planes, they have boats, they have, they actually have SEAL teams that swim this stuff underwater uh, onto the shores of the United States. And they have an unbelievable network um, to get it into the communities. So the, the big one, for the, the, the Northeast network is all through New Jersey. And we have one of our, uh, one of our deputy sheriffs is embedded. And I talked earlier about those opportunities. Uh, we have a, the Boston police FBI strike force. Uh, one of our, our our deputies is embedded in that unit, and um, they are fighting it every single day. And uh, we need to, you know, the the federal government, you know, consistently needs to step up the plate a little bit more uh, because our kids are dying. And uh, I, like I said, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but not only is the fentanyl production gone through the roof and everything's getting laced with it, but the next round is with methamphetamine. The, the labs in Mexico, the, which they, they, have, they have reason to believe even the government of Mexico is supportive of this. Um, and it's well, very that, sad. So. That, that brings me to a, to a point that, you know, if, if a couple guys came over from any other country and shot three or four of our citizens and killed them, we'd go after them, right? If they went back to that country, we'd still we'd make that country go after them. Why doesn't the U.S put enough pressure on the government in Mexico to stop these cartels from doing what they're doing. Why, why are they not doing that? You know, that's to me, to me, that's a bigger problem. And then if we just say to Mexico, I mean, know oh, this might sound extreme, but a hundred thousand people died last year and the year before. Right. And if, if it was any other thing other than a drug, we would be attacking that country. Why wouldn't we just tell the Mexican, uh, the, you know, the Mexican authorities, if you don't deal with this, we're going to deal with it for you and it move so, our own move our own military across the border and into it. You know, universally, the, the, the sheriffs of, of the country and, and we, we gave a loud, resounding message to, to all the government officials while we were there. Exactly what you just said, you know, and unless unless there's some high security briefings that I'm sure there are that we're not privy to. Um, I think it's a disgrace to allow this to un unfold. I mean, I mean, not that we want to march into any kind of major military operation, um, but there's got to be some pressures that we can put, you know, on, on governments that support this kind of stuff. It, it is killing our kids. And it, at the end of the day, well, it's, it's a disgrace that we allow it. You know, so some, well, it has to, be, has to be something to be done. I, I, that's a, it's a little bit of a higher pay grade than I currently have now, but, uh, but I wouldn't mind the opportunity someday taking a bite of that one. Well, why wouldn't we do the same thing we're doing for Putin now? Why don't we create sanctions for the Mexican government? And let's start applying sanctions instead of having NAFTA. Let's have sanctions. Yeah. Because I think any American companies who, who operate in Mexico 
are indirectly responsible because they're propping up the Mexican government by them putting money over on that side. You know, at first I thought it was nice, but, you know, the way to work with Mexico and Canada. But now under this situation, the world has changed. And I'll tell you, I mean, 100,000 people haven't died yet in Ukraine, you know, and look what we're doing over there, you know, because it's it's some villain that we can look at. But this is a villain that is a drug dealers. And I would think the drug dealers, uh, they are the Putins of Mexico and we need to do something, you know, and that's it seems silly. Everybody says, oh, you're just sitting around and letting this happen to Ukraine. Well, we're sitting around for the last five years and letting it happen to the United States. And I think, you know, that's why I have the courage to hope. I hope we have some some um, some hope down the line here that this that this and it should be life in prison immediately, you know, for anybody who's selling um, fentanyl, in my opinion, yeah. or artificial drugs of any kind like that should be should yeah. be life in prison. And what we what we find too is in, and uh, and that there are I guess for lack of a better word there are levels of drug dealers I guess that are out there and a lot of drug dealers especially ones that are that actually end up doing time in my facility and sometimes in the Department of Correction they themselves are addicted um, so at the end of the day I, I made the point when I was down in Washington that yeah you've got to cut off the source of this stuff because once it hits the streets you're going to have there are, there, are, there are folks that are feeding their drug habit by selling drugs. And that's the sad part. Oh, yeah. Um, For those, people, and, those people I look at differently than the source, as you call it. I mean, yeah. if you know, and I, and I think there's even there's, there's literally thousands of 18 wheelers that come from Mexico with product built for companies in the United States. And there's a lot of people that a lot of drug drivers don't even realize that there's there's bags of, of fentanyl or fake pills in the shipment that's coming in because that's what they do. You know, they're, they're making X, Y, Z furniture or this, that, or appliances, tuck it away. And then there's somebody on the other side that peels it out for them. And that can happen so easily to get in because there's just so much traffic going back and forth, you know, uh, and some of it's legitimate, but then there's always that one or two that are sneaking through and that's enough to wipe out couple thousand people if you're not careful that's the, the volume so high as much as as much as i i have the utmost respect for the border patrol and and local sheriffs and and no matter what there the volume is so high coming across you know every now and then you, you'll see a big bust which is celebrated and thank god it is but the amount of celebrations we have there's a lot a lot more unfortunately that we're losing because it, there's just too much of it coming in and so it, it is. It is a dilemma that 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 needs to be addressed in Washington. Needs to certainly be addressed. And, and you, you hate to think that we'd have to take any kind of military action on it. But you know, this is an international diplomacy issue. The State Department should be in, involved. Certainly, homeland security. It is a homeland security issue. Um, That's correct. Because you, you know, so. it's making the United States much weaker. By right away. I mean, the other thing is the, the life expectancy in the United States has dropped a couple of years in the past few years because there's so much going on. Um, I was reading through one of your um, press releases and I saw that there was actually a prisoner who was trying to get Suboxone into the prison. I thought yes. that was a bit strange. And I was wondering, um, sometimes you could read that and you say, well, what if the guy was on Suboxone before he got there and he can't get any now? Are you able to distribute Suboxone or Bupropamine 
in the prison? Do you have doctors that can give prescriptions for that? And so explain we, to people what it what it is if they're not, you know, in case everybody doesn't know what it is. Exactly. Norfolk County was was one of the first. Um, it was a pilot program that was put in place a couple of years ago before before I became sheriff. And it was it was a controversial program. Medical, uh, basically, uh, it was basically a program for medication for opioid use disorder. So it's the mood program, and that program is put in place to help justice-involved individuals recover from substance use disorder in a safe, controlled, and supervised environment. Um, we were able to uh, receive last year a $700,000 state opioid response grant from the Mass Department of Public Health to expand the treatment program for our, for our individuals. Um, it, it, basically, it does help offenders with the addiction by providing the medically-assisted treatment which is different, different, there's four different kinds of medication that we currently use, but we do it in a controlled way. We do it with drug counseling involved as well as ongoing support um, post-release. We currently are the only facility in the Commonwealth that also offers sublocate, which is an injectable form of treatment. And the issue is, you know, the the controversy that that started this out um, years ago was the fact that the question was whether or not you were trading one addiction for another. And that's a legitimate argument because, you know, Suboxone and all these other drugs have an addictive compulsion to them. However, they also help with weaning off um, the, the opioid addiction in and of itself. But in a, in a controlled environment under the proper supervision of medical staff, um, it has proven to be very successful. And it'll, it does allow people to wean themselves off of a day-to-day addiction um, of the of the opioid uh, drugs, the issue is it does come because the, the, if done done without a controlled environment, done absent medical supervision, these drugs are also attractive for people who who just want to use them on their own without the correct supervision. So that's why it's so lucrative for some of these individuals to try to sneak the contraband into the facility. Um, they do so in various mechanisms. They can try to do so through our contact visits when they have a visit from a, a loved one, a girlfriend or a relative. Uh, they can do so by ingesting it and coming into the facility, um, which is the means by which we, 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 we found the, uh, the individual the last time uh, that uh, was trying to sneak it in. And we do that. You know, this, this is a cooperative effort that we have with uh, other folks with other other justice involved individuals within the facility who get tips people that are outside the facility that that know we've established so much trust with individuals that we we do get tips from people uh when these situations are happening so um, from inmates from inmates yes yeah, yeah. so you, okay. you you get in, you make you get informants uh similar to like in the real world that you see on tv you, you cultivate informants that are willing to cooperate and help us out um, and, and they do so with, with some protection, but we all, we, we got this tip outside of the facility. It was, it was a heads up to us that an individual, this is a, it's a drug, basically it's a drug ring. This is, this isn't anything new, uh, at least, especially for our investigative teams. Um, this is something that's ongoing. It's a process that, uh, it's, it's well worth technically getting caught according to the perpetrators. To, to at least try to get this stuff inside the facility because the value of it on the street or within the facility is is very is is, is well this this particular 
but 35 strips of Suboxone was $14,000. So it's, it's, it's worth it to them to, to, to take the risk. Most of the sentences that these guys are having, they're going to come in and do, you know, maybe a couple of months or, you know, n- never do we see them serving like a full two and a half years for, for some of the smaller crimes that are committed. They know they're going to come in, they're going to do three, four months. And so if they can sneak drugs into the facility and make some money by doing a racket, it's worth it for them. So it's our obligation wow. to stop it from happening. Unless the judge says it's five years instead of five months and it screws up the plan. So we, we do prosecute these cases. And so when, when somebody is, the, the, the individual who, who, who was caught here will in fact be prosecuted to the full extent uh, that, is, that is allowed and which could face higher mandatory because that, that, you know, a major drug trafficking uh, crime that, that he'll be accused of. And, and that will likely, if he is convicted of it, um, if we put our case forth, as I know our team will, um, he could be facing some serious time. So let's just say we have an inmate who's been on Suboxone for about four months, and now he's going to get released. And of course, now he needs a doctor or somebody who's going to prescribe it. So how do you, how do you wean them to go to these? Are you setting up the after prison um, appointments or oh, how does that work? So we, we make sure that every every uh, every man that, that is leaving our facility has a post-incarceration plan in place, including all kinds of things, whether it's housing, programming, but certainly health care. Um, the problem comes, you know, and we do set them so set them up with 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 the health proper health care in place. The problem comes is there is no post-incarceration requirement for any of this, any of these people to follow through on on what they're supposed to do. Sometimes you will have an individual who will have some probation requirements post-incarceration, but oftentimes they don't. Um, and it's something that I wanna work on as prospectively going forward to see whether or not, and, and it's about trust too. We're, we're trying to, we, as, as we try to develop our relationship with these individuals, we wanna show them that, it, that, that we have, we, we're looking out for their best interest. And if they truly find success within the facility, we can help them post-incarceration. And that's why I'm trying to put together a program that, that would, would give us the opportunity to work with these individuals up to a year out uh, after incarceration to help them with uh, continuing with their programming, specifically with their uh, medical treatment uh, on, for, for substance use disorder, uh, mental health issues, et cetera. You know, but once again, it is right now that building of trust because it would be more of a voluntary position. We'll have to work with changing the laws to make it any kind of uh, put some teeth into it. And actually, I would prefer not to have to have people incarcerated in the first place for substance use disorder issues, whether that caused that whether that caused crime and the behavior itself. If we can get these people into a residential treatment facility, that could be helpful for uh, for us. Uh, that's what I'm looking to do uh, rather than see them incarcerated, especially if somebody goes back out on probation, violates their probation for whether it's failing a drug test or missing a drug test. We need better mechanisms by uh, by which we can help these people on on um, in post incarceration. So it's something we're looking forward to working on uh, because I yeah. right now I'm not satisfied. It's it's up to par yet. So if somebody was on Suboxone and they got out and they were on probation. Uh, and they took a drug test, they'd fail it, wouldn't they? Because Suboxone is a they, form of 
opioid. If they, if, if they, if they, well, they, if unless they're on, if they're under medical supervision, then that would be a, that would be something that we would be tracking with That'd probation. Be, be the ex, but be the exception. Yeah. If yeah, if they if they ended up if that was not part of their prescription and they were out there doing some, you know, whether it's that or heroin or anything else, then they would be violated of their probation. And sadly, that puts them back into the facility. Sometimes that's a good thing because we have at least the treatment there that they need, but it, it becomes a revolving door scenario, which is something that we don't want to see. Yeah, one, one of the biggest problems is stigma. So if you have an inmate and he goes back out into the work world again, the stigma of having a, a crime, number one, and number two, the addiction problem of saying it was a crime and knowing that the person was on something. Employers don't like to hire that type of person. They get very leery of because they know is when somebody is, as you said early, early on, somebody's got a severe addiction problem. They steal from their own parents, never mind from a boss. You know, it's easy to exactly. stick your hand in the cash register and steal some of the product out the back door and sell it on the street. So that that's a big problem, too, is getting them a job and keeping them a stable human being again. And that's why we, we my one of my first hires was a directory director for reentry services. And um, he hit the ground running and, and we work with uh, employers uh, around the region, not just in Norfolk County, but around the region who are uh, who are what we call Corey friendly. They're willing to take a second chance on somebody who is uh, who has done time in the in the correctional facility. Um, we have over eighty Corey friendly employers that are willing to take a, a second chance at, at at one of our folks. Now, you know, we make sure that we are doing what we need to do on the inside to guarantee that that individual is ready. We do it through, you know, if it is addiction issues, we make sure that they have all the things that they need within our facility, but also post-incarceration set up, ready to go. Um, but, but we also give them work, uh, the, the skills that they need, depending on the, um, the industry that they're going to, making sure that they, they're properly trained up and skilled up, ready to go. But it is, it is a challenge and it is something that, um, that the employers know what's going on. And we wanna make sure that we stay in contact with the employer to see whether or not those particular placements are working. Um, and if they're not, we have to determine why they're not working. So we're just the, we're right now in the experimental stage. Now we've we've placed a couple of uh, of our justice involved individuals with employers, uh, and we're we're doing the follow up now with them to see if things are working out. So so far so good. We've heard we've had we've had great results so far in the first year that we've had this program in place, and so we're hoping to expand it and continue the success. But we want to build on the metrics of it. We want to get some real metrics driven success stories or, you know, things that don't work so that we can fix them and move in a different direction. I guess it's, I'll plug our movie coming out. We have a, a movie that was in the Boston Film Festival a couple of years ago during COVID and uh, we got a couple of awards and we're going to put it on, I think it's either going to be on Prime Video or, or Hulu and it's called Walk in My Shoes and it follows four men who get out of a correctional institution and the cameras follow their life for the first year after they're out. Wow. And, uh, that should, that should be out. And it's called, it's on, it's produced by wall street productions, which I happen to be uh, a third, one third owner of, and uh, it should be out soon. In fact, I want to see if I can get a copy and send it to you so you can watch it before it's out. 
I'd, I'd um, love to watch it and, and when it's appropriate, even uh, if, you know, if, it, if it passes, what we have to scrutinize everything that everybody sees. I'm sure it's going to be, be great to, to show in the facility because if, if it yeah. provides one of the pillars that I look for, if it provides hope for any individual that's serving time now that there is hope after incarceration, then that's what I want them to see. Oh, well, speaking of hope, uh, before we run out of time, I wanted to, uh, oh, yeah, I forgot about the, the, could you quickly talk about the body camera program that you're doing? How does that work? Uh, so right now, right now, body cam, there's a body cam commission in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, which I'm a member of, um, and it's putting forth regulations on um, how, how body cameras will be utilized by municipal police departments throughout the Commonwealth, how to procure the technology, when to use it, when public has access to it. So we're going through a bunch of regulations on it. Uh, right now, the, 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 there, are, there are no requirements for correctional officers to use body cams. However, as sheriffs in Massachusetts, we are all moving in that direction uh, to use body cameras to, to basically protect our officers and protect the rights of, of the just just involved individuals in our facility that when, when um, you know, in terms of use of force issues or any kind of cell extractions or things of that nature and, and body cameras themselves, uh, although they were met with some kind, some degree of uh, reluctance from police officers and, and sheriffs and alike, most of, I think that the, the thinking these days is these, uh, that body camera technology is a blessing for law enforcement because it really, uh, it, it sheds a light for the public as to how police operations work. It will certainly serve us in the corrections facility to see the day-to-day -day things that we have to do uh, with individuals. Um, uh, and so, and it protects our officers when it comes down to them. That's why I, I'm pushing the regulations. I think our officers uh, are very well trained, uh, but they're subject to, to, to civil rights uh, complaints in the federal district court and body cameras themselves can, can exonerate. We have cameras throughout our facility anyways. Uh, they're not body cameras, but we have, there's, there's, a, there's very rare places in the Norfolk County Correctional Facility that you can't see what's going on uh, because of the That's extensive good. surveillance equipment that we have. But body cameras are coming. It is the 21st century technology that law enforcement will employ uh, for the safety of the officers and for the benefit of the public to see, to shed light as to how, how police operations work. Okay. So again, in the vein of courage to hope, tell me about John King and your Norfolk County Hero Program. Did you develop that or do you just take it over? How does that all work? So we, we, did, we wanted to do something when the pandemic was hitting and it was gloom and doom every day on the TV and on the newspaper. And we said there's so many acts of heroism going on um, on our day-to-day -day 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 basis throughout the pandemic and even post-pandemic. But uh, John King was one of our first uh, recipients, and John's a Navy veteran, and, and was driving, you know, vets to appointments and getting groceries for them, and even just driving them around and having conversations. And we've had several uh, Norfolk County heroes come by, um, and we're we're uh, getting ready to announce another uh, another several of them uh, this spring. Uh, but we think it's a great program that just recognizes the day to day things that individuals are doing around Norfolk County to make it a better place and a safer place to live and to work and raise a family. So we think it's a great program. I love, I'm glad my staff came up with it and we're, and we're promoting it as much as possible.
Yeah, I, I like that because it's the show. It shows you on a positive light. You're paying attention to those that are doing good. I think that's really good. And speaking of that, uh, how about the coffee, the coffee gatherings? You know, um, I saw that you had a whole bunch of them in January, but I understand you're doing private ones. But are you going back to public ones soon? We're doing, uh, yeah, we're doing a bunch of them. We're doing the, uh, we do a couple of private ones. I'm doing one this week at a at a sober house. Uh, which is great. Uh, I'm looking forward to doing that and meet with some of the some of the guys that are living at that sober house and just hearing about their stories. But uh, but yeah, the public ones are great too. We're, I mean, they've been fantastic because we get to go out to a local diner or a bakery or coffee shop and you meet with residents. We typically invite you know we put it out to the public. Uh, you know people drop in as they want. Um, we usually have the local police chief or some of his staff. Uh, you know, the veterans affairs agent will come down and uh, chat with us. The council on aging director, some sometimes elected officials will show up. So it's been a kind of a cornucopia of people. But for me, it's good because I want to keep my ears to the ground. And it's a good way to be out in the community and listen town by town, you know, what these various issues are, in, you know, in the respective communities. So they've been very successful um, uh, from from my perspective, just because I I, I want to hear what the residents have to say and what's going on in each community, and and it's a good working relationship. It puts once again law enforcement in a good public light. That we that we do we definitely care for people. I would like to go to one of those if you keep me in mind when you're doing a public one. I'd like to visit so I can report Absolutely. back on the success of how that works because I think it's really good to. A lot of people just don't get the idea of what the sheriff does. Most people in the old days, all they think about is the sheriff's the guy that comes and hands you a piece of paper that says your wife's divorcing you or, or you owe money to somebody. <laughs> so we need, you know, it's, it's good to have all this positive stuff going on. It's a great, great image thing, too, you know, so I, I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate all the time that you've given me today. This was I know you're a very busy guy and it's. Very up, nice that you've given me all this time. I really appreciate it. And this is uh, Uncle Tony, and we've been talking to Patrick W. McDermott, who's the Norfolk County Sheriff, who, by the way, just happens to be running for re-election this year for a six-year term. So if you like what you hear, you know what to do. Thank you very much. This is Uncle Tony signing off till next time.